from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, Yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So he talked like a, he had, the lingo was a rough and ready truck driver. Right. not so much in today's Japanese, but at that time, the differentiation between classes and sexes and age and all that was very different. So for me, for instance, as a five-year-old girl, the appropriate way for me to refer to myself would be watakshi wa ne. And the, the Tanaka-san would have said boku wa sa. So I talk, I learned largely from Tanaka-san, I talk like a foul mouth, you know, middle-aged truck driver. Raise a lot of eyebrows. I'm Linda Pearl. I'm thrilled to be on Brian's show. I'm an actress and a mom and a singer. I like to say not necessarily in that order. Got to play Helene on The Office, which was one of the best gigs ever. Hello, hello, gentle listeners. I am so glad you've joined me today for a brand spanking new episode of Off the Beat. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Some might call today a happy day, but more on that in a moment. I have a strong hunch a lot of you are going to know my guest today, the amazing Linda Pearl from her time on The Office playing Michael Scott's love interest. I mean, (laughs) Pam Beasley's mom, Helene Beasley. But if you were around and paying any attention to pop culture at all in the 70s or 80s, you would definitely know her as the Fonz's girlfriend, Ashley Pfister on Happy Days, 
or maybe as Charlene on Matlock or from her multitude of roles on and off Broadway over the years. I love Linda. She comes from the Pearl family tradition of theater. She sure lives up to it. Her whole family was involved in theater growing up. She grew up in Japan. But on top of that, now she has found the time to start a sourdough starter kit business with her partner, Patrick Duffy, to climb mountains and to have a full-on jazz career. I was so happy to bring her onto the podcast so that all of you could get to know Linda just a little bit better. And now is the time to do that. All right. Let the waiting stop. Let the conversation commence. Here she is, everybody. Linda Pearl. Bubble and squeak. I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. Hi, Linda. You are such a doll. Can't oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I it's... tell you the look on Max's face when not only look, jumping jacks, he was over the moon to get your photograph. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. I'm really so good. glad. Thank you for doing uh, I, I, I last saw you there at the Dundercon. How was that for you? It was great. Oh, my gosh. Well, the fun... I mean, I've done other, I'm sure we all have, you know, autograph events like that. However, not never one that was dedicated to one show. Right. And the office fans are a breed unto themselves. They were so much fun. They were so festive. So in the spirit of the show, they were so well versed in the show. Um, I mean, the costumes were to die for. Crazy, right? Yeah, really. And it was an education because, I mean, you know far better than I for all your wonderful years on this show that the ability for the office to tap into to an audience and to ignite that sort of silly fun in all of us, uh, it, you don't get to see that um, when you're doing the work. But boy, we got to experience it there. It was It was really cool. Yeah. It's always amazing to me uh i'm wondering if you had any experiences where the fans feel as though they they're not telling you because they want to they're almost telling you because they feel a need to let you know how much the show has meant to them or you know helped them through a difficult time you bet you bet yeah, it's it's stunning Especially to me coming out of the coming out of the pandemic. It's like people missed the experience of being in an office. They they missed their friends and their enemies and their frenemies and just the dynamic of being together, uh, not you know sealed up in your home. So that was cool. Just this kind of bonus uh, factor of um, a different kind of resurgence or a different kind of locking into the show because of the pandemic. Yeah. No, I, I think that's true as well. And obviously we we learned a lot of people were were watching it for the first time or re-watching it yeah. uh, during that time that they were away. Um, well, I want to start 
back a ways okay. for you. Um, <laughs> you grew up in a family, a long line of performers. Your mom was an actress. Your dad was a director. Yeah. Your grandmother was a, a stage actress. Yes. Um, what, what kind of influence do you think that that had for you as a, as a child? Huge. Absolutely huge. My mother had been an actress, but also a ballerina, a dad, an actor, and a director. And dad grew up on the road. Um, his parents were touring actors through the, through the Midwest. So that was his joy and family glue. He had a career as an engineer, but he never in his heart left the theater. And that was my parents' family glue. It's what they did together. Dad had his career in Japan. So they were away from family halfway around the world for family. And in those days, getting there just wasn't that, just wasn't that easy. Right. And, and also Japan was a, a much more foreign place than it is today. And in that moment that I was growing up in the late 50s through the 60s, early 70s, Japan was in a moment of huge inhale, cultural inhale. They were very, very curious to know about the West, all over the West. I mean, if that includes the then Soviet Union. And um, so there was a constant influx of of culture, the Bolshoi and the Kirov and people, you know, artists from behind the Iron Curtain were coming through. We had a fairly big house, uh, just not because we were wealthy, it's just what the company gave them. Right. So some guest rooms. And so there was really only one or two hotels. So you never knew who was going to show up at breakfast. We'd have members of the Royal Shakespeare Company or the Kirov Ballet just hanging out at the house it was like, who are you? And so so that was sort of the culture in in our home. There were painters and writers and Harold Clermont, Tennessee Williams lived with us for a period of time. So wait, what Tennessee Williams lived with you in Japan for a time? I mean, I say that I didn't live he was there for a couple of months. So not right. really, it wasn't like he moved in for five years or anything. But still that was Yes, he was. Uh, they were very interested in his work in Japan, and so he came over to oversee a couple of productions of his of his play. And he came with a dog. There were very strict quarantine regulations at that time, so they said you're going to have to leave the country uh, if you you know if you insist on being here with your dog. But they also recognized that he was a cultural icon, and we had dogs and a caged-in area. So they, it was funny. They, uh, Mr. Williams came with his dog, and the cultural attaché and the quarantine people came to the house, and uh, and they said, "Okay, well, Mr. and Mrs. Pearl, if you sign your life away and promise that this dog, who is this big, by the way, right. does not leave." you know, the boundary, we'll make this lone exception. And Tennessee said, well, that's fine. But where my dog stays, I stay too. And my parents are like, well, okay, come ahead. <laughs> so he stayed there and it was hysterical, you know, but those kinds of things. So yeah, the, all of that had a tremendous influence. My parents weren't atheists or agnostics necessarily, but we didn't go to church. So the theater and the arts was our family glue, our family church and our our community. You grew up in Japan. Was this difficult as a child for you there, or was this just a blessing? It was such a gift. For any child growing up anywhere, we think that's the world, right? I mean, that's right. just accepted as normal. So there were things of privilege that we had 
again, not because we were wealthy, it was just an accident of the times that I look back now on and just the, the education, the global exposure. I mean, in my school, we had 33 different nationalities, every possible religion. And we, we just got along because we were in it together. And so to have that as a, as a child, to be, you know, in a diverse um, environment, uh, I think was, again, I just took it for granted. I didn't, it, it never occurred to me that, that we were a different anything. We were in different classes or, you know, different parents, but that was it. Those were the lines of demarcation. And beyond that, everyone was in it together. Right. You, uh, so I read here that you had your own TV show <laughs> on Japan's educational network, ages seven to 14. I mean, you say as a, as a kid, your world is the world. Like that's how you see things. Was your early experience a part of who your family was? Like, that's just what you do you just perform you go into into acting or or was this a particular interest to you uh no it was probably both i mean okay. my my parents it's what they did i they had so much joy and so many friendships out of it that we we would see at the dinner table we would see them rehearsing plays you know in the living room and yes it was in the dna or sort of spoon fed to me but also i i took to it and my parents were those kind of people that had you know had my sister and i wanted to go into the sciences or medicine i think they would have been equally thrilled uh maybe with some dismay they thought oh no another generation shot to hell but very, <laughs> you know very supportive now it was not my own tv show there was this yen for learning English. And so NHK, the educational, the sort of the NPR of still ongoing in Japan, had several programs geared for teaching English uh, at different levels. And the basic format was that they would have a skit uh, that would be performed by an English speaking person. And then they would sit around in sort of a chat show kind of format on sofas, and they would explain to the viewer that these the professors were the new vocabulary words, the grammatical structure, and they would have me, in this case, sitting on the sofa, and they would kind of poke me because I could say the word in perfect American accent, oddly enough. So that was my lone donation to the show, but I would be involved <laughs> in, the, in the skit, which were you know, what is the name of your dog? Or please, may I have some carrots from the supermarket? You know, so it was a very elementary teaching English program. But it did put me in a TV studio. Right. With the cameras and with the crew and other people. And I suppose there was a bit of makeup here and there and the occasional line to learn. So it was a lovely sort of easy early on apprenticeship into what it's like to be on a set. Right. Did you speak fluent Japanese? I did. My dad, again, that came with the, with the company. We had a, a wonderful driver for my dad, but he was at the house a lot, Tanaka-san. And Tanaka-san had been a rough and ready truck driver. And he had swapped out that career now to be in a suit and driving a car for you know, and this, this particular executive. So he talked like a he had the lingo was a rough and ready truck driver. Right. And not so much in today's Japanese, but at that time, the differentiation between 
classes and sexes and age and all that was very different. So for me, for instance, as a five-year-old girl, the appropriate way for me to refer to myself would be watakshi wane. And the, the Tanaka-san would have said boku asa. So I talk, I learned largely from Tanaka-san, I talk like a foul mouth, you know, middle-aged truck driver, a five-year-old girl. <laughs> raise a lot of eyebrows, but yes. And I, I never really studied the language. Oh, a little bit of writing, but I had that gift of, I just got to pick it up on the street. So mm-hmm. I, I admire the people who struggle and study hard to learn it. I didn't have to, uh, to get it that way. That said, it never advanced after I more or less moved away. So, you know, that's kind of the level. It's a, it's a conversational level and it's very old fashioned. In the way that I have Japanese friends who'd gone to university in the States in the 70s, I tease them because they'll say, oh man, that's groovy or, you know, I got to get back to my pad. It's like, we can't really say that anymore. People won't know what we're talking about. So that's kind of how my Japanese sounds. Yeah. <laughs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Not only did Zen create the first ever nicotine pouch, we're still America's number one choice for smoke-free, spit-free nicotine satisfaction. It could be because Zen is made with only six simple ingredients, including naturally derived nicotine salt. Or maybe it's because Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day trial. For anyone worried Zen won't cut it like traditional tobacco, just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com slash find. That's zyn.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. 
were at the time uh, the only foreigner to train at the. Now, my Japanese is not it, like yours. Toho Geno? Yeah, to- perfect. Real? Okay. Yeah. Uh, Academy film studio that was behind Godzilla, by the way. So, I mean, this is a significant thing. Why were you allowed to train there or what, what did they see in you or, or how did that transpire? Well, I did a couple of plays with them. And so, and Toho was a, is a large theatrical corporation along the lines of the old studio system in Hollywood. You know, they would have their, their sort of coterie of actors, performers, directors, whatnot. And they would also train them. And uniformity is is a is a big thing um, for many island nations. And I mean, they're having to get along in a small space. So uniformity helps a lot. And Japan is no exception. Hmm. And that bleeds into all aspects of education and business and, and the arts. So their academy was very strong and really wanting everybody to be working from the same place using the same disciplines. And so because I was able to work with them every once in a while and do a couple of their TV shows, it was important, I guess, that I, uh, that I take some classes there and I studied dance, uh, ballet and jazz and acting and I, maybe some singing along the way too. But again, it was just an accident of, of timing and life. Uh, there were not in Tokyo any other little girls who were who spoke the language, whose families were living there for as long as we did. My folks were there for about 30 years altogether. Usually wow. folks would come through for two and three years and then their company would move them on or the diplomatic corps would move them on to the next post in some other country. That was not the way my dad's career uh, you know, worked. He was there and so there were we. So between the longevity of living there and speaking the language and having an interest in it, I was the only one. I was kind of a freak, kind of weird thing, but it was fun for me because then I got to I got to study there. And there the jazz and certainly the acting was curious because it wasn't their organic art form. Their organic art forms would be kabuki and no and yes. Bundaku, none of which I studied at all. I mean, they're all men disciplines, so I, I couldn't really. So they were doing their, in order to do modern pieces, which is all I was involved with or being trained for, they were teaching their version of American acting. So they would have watched or perhaps even studied, my professors, American artists and then through their Japanese lens, which had more to do with mimicking than actually having it be an organic right. art form. And then, so that's what I was taught, which wasn't like, and later on, I went to the Lee Strasberg Institute and stuff. It's like, yes. oh, that's what they meant. So it, it, was a, it was a curious, I mean, I'm sure as things do, their training has evolved tremendously. But at that time, I mean, the concept of free emotion and free music bla- breaking the classical line was just mind-blowing for Japan. It was just right. not the way things were done at all. So uh, again, I took it for granted 
at the time. And now I think what a curious moment I got to be exposed to as those tectonic plate shifts were happening within the culture. Yes, that's so fascinating to me. I mean, first off, you talked about uniformity and how important that is. I mean, that, you know, in a way feels antithetical to at least what what we think of as as art and and free expression. But, you know, the idea that, well, it wasn't really it wasn't really something that they did. So they were trying to imitate what they were seeing happening, which I think by nature does make it much more uniform. If it's not organic, it's something you're putting on. Absolutely. That's fascinating to me. <laughs> In fact, one one time there's some show and I there was a, a moment in the in the musical and I there's a pop of separation. Anyway, it's a sad moment. It's a musical, but it's a sad moment. And I cried real tears on stage that evening. And I was so pleased with myself. I was about eleven. And I got back to my dressing room and I had a notification that I was supposed to go see the director. And I thought, oh, I know he's going to be so pleased with my work because I was especially pleased with myself. And I walked in and there he was behind his desk and he gave me a talking to and He was furious. He said to cry real tears was just not on. And I thought, oh, wow, that's, but he was right because I was doing a different acting method than anybody else on stage. It wasn't right. So it was very curious. And he caught it. You know, he saw it. It was a big house. It was a 1,500-seat house. And he saw it. And boy, I never did that again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I mean, I guess guess you could say I had uh, this. I haven't thought about this. I haven't talked about this, Linda, in so long. The same experience in reverse. I played in the theater one time a role in Kabuki. I played the old evil grandmother in a production with full Kabuki makeup that I did myself, by the way. I want to see pictures. I, I have one somewhere, yes. But the reason I bring it up is it wasn't real Kabuki, right? It was it was an American, actually French director interpretation. Oh of what Kabuki was with a comedic slant on it, I'll be honest. So it was, uh, yeah, but I played, yes, I played the evil, the archetype of the evil uh, grandmother oh, fabulous. Uh, in full, in full Kabuki. So there oh, you go. Excellent. I don't think, I don't think I'd be allowed in Japan now that I'm thinking. About <laughs> <it>. um, <laughs> so your family stayed, but you left Japan yes. to come back to the States. Was that for education or w- what was that decision? It was hormones, you know, time to okay. get away from my folks, right? I mean, <laughs> that pop of separation. But also I, I was interested in the theater and I felt like a gimmick over there. I mean, I'm so grateful for all of the experiences and training and stuff. But at the end of the day, if they, the only reason they would hire me is if they needed you know, a blondie who spoke Japanese. I mean, it right. was so I was a gimmick. And I was curious to know how I would fare in America or in the West anyway. So there was that. It was sort of a popular thing to go to boarding school and all that. So it was a confluence of things. And I 
I came back and it's funny, next week I'm getting together. Uh, we, we have a biannual reunion with some Tokyo childhood girlfriends and, you know, we we're very close as kids. And then we had our lives and raised our kids and careers and whatnot. And now we get together and a constant uh, a topic of our discussion is, is the culture shock that we each experienced. And we were from, we were not necessarily from the same native countries, but when we returned to our native countries, it was hard because at that point you don't belong in Japan and you don't belong in your native country. You're sort Fascinating. of what call third culture kids. So it's a price to pay. You know, whenever you're in one place, there's a part of you that's left behind. Um, and we all have that. I mean, if anybody's moved from the city to the country or vice versa. Sure. So it, it's a price, but it's, it's, it's worth it. So, yeah, I mean, when I, moved to the States in the seventies. I mean, Japan was a drug-free nation, not so much mm. in the seventies in the States. <laughs> right. Know? What? People are doing what? Uh, so, and, and lots of things, lots of freedoms. And it was sort of the beginning of the women's movement. So that was very antithetical really to the things I saw, the influences that I was raised around. Gosh. That's so interesting. You eventually study at some very significant, in terms of the theater world in the United States, uh, mm -hmm. Neighborhood Playhouse, mm -hmm. Lee Strasberg Institute, mm -hmm. which the basis of that was my background as well. Um, was theater what you were most interested in at that point? Oh, yes. Yes, I didn't really think about the other. Um, I mean, I'd done a couple of films, but it I love that you just called it the other, by the way. I'm going to use that as well. I'm going to use that from now on. The other. Uh, yes. Yeah. I I felt that was, you know, the, the, the basis for everything. It was the foundation. And from there, sort of like ballet. I mean, if you have ballet, then you can move into jazz or modern. Uh, if you know what the line is, then you can break it. But you have to sort of know what the line is. And and theater being the actor's medium, it, it was what was most uh, well, it was what I was more raised in. Right. You were based primarily in New York at this time? I was. Mm -hmm. I was. And then I had gone out to actually Donnie Most. Darling Donnie Most was a friend and he moved out to L.A. And Donnie had mentioned, oh, there's this, you know, a part that you might be right for on Happy Days. Anyway, I auditioned. And so I started working more in in L.A. in television rather than in New York. So it took about five years to leave New York uh, altogether. But that was sort of the beginning of starting my career in television. Yeah. Transitioning to the other. You played Gloria, dating uh, the main character, Ron Howard, at the yeah. time. Now, you just audition for this role. Do you have any any stories that you remember from auditioning for that? There was a wonderful casting director, Bobby Hoffman, and his office was like no others. He just loved actors and especially young actors. He just was for you in the room. And it didn't matter if you did a horrible audition or great. He was just, that's great. Go for it. He was just this force of encouragement for so many young actors. And everyone who was on Happy Days came through Bobby's office. I guess the main you know, the prominent story for me is certainly as relates to happy days was, so I did the character of Gloria as 
just as a recurring, as a supporting character around Ron Howard's character, because it was his show. But as Happy Days progressed, it was the Fonzie character that took off and Ron was thinking about going into directing. It's such a shame that didn't work out for him. (laughs) He left the show, which meant that I was out of a job. I mean, they didn't need those satellite characters anymore. And I was adios. And fade out, fade in, however many years later now, there's a casting notification that went out for a a fiance for Fonzie and they wanted to have a Linda Pearl type. That's actually what the breakdown said. So my agent called and said, oh, please, oh, please, could Linda audition? And I did. And I ended up getting the role. So, and Gary Marshall, who I adored, I mean, what a remarkable human being. He very kindly uh, let me come back years later as an entirely different character. Yeah. So you start to Richie Cunningham's yeah. love interest. And yeah. then, yes, as you said, I mean, I, it's hard to even imagine this happening today. Uh, but coming back years later, um, mm-hmm. a totally different character. Were you concerned or, I mean, Gary Marshall doesn't, didn't seem concerned that fans would pick up on this or that you were the same person? Yeah. Was there a discussion about it? If there was, I don't, I don't recall it. I mean, it was just, you know, Gary was a very single-minded person. And if he, he made a decision, that was how it was going to go. And uh, I'm not, I'm not sure he was ever wrong. I'm certainly grateful that that's how he decided in this, in this case. Right. How was it like working with those guys? on that show. I mean, at the time, the biggest show in television. Yeah, it was, it was great. Very similar in feel to the set on the office. I think because, well, first of all, because I'd met all of them early on, that was the the downbeat for friendships that lasted many of them for my life. I mean, Tom Bosley was a a friend, Marion Remains, Anson. And so that was fun. And to see them now from a distance, because I wasn't on the show, he had this meteoric rise. So in many ways, it felt like coming home when I got to come back to the show. But Gary was interesting. He, we had a softball team and you had to play no matter how poorly you played. <laughs> and no matter, Henry would be the first to say, no matter how stupid he looked in those silly little shorts, why we're going to play. And as we know, you get on a sports field and the and it's leveled. I mean, it's just, there's no chance for diva or nonsense or nothing. So that was great. And the other thing, which I like to tell, but it's, it is kind of gross. It was the success of happy days, rebuilt the Paramount lot, rebuilt, paved the roads, new landscaping, new great commissary, new buildings. Gary never allowed them to put in a second bathroom on the soundstage, which had its own sort of leveling effect. So that meant that everyone, you know, I mean, right. So it was just the, the humanness on that set. There were these gentle reminders where it, it just got real, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't an opportunity for things to kind of get, get fancy in the way that they could when you're experiencing that kind of success. Right. And, so Jerry Paris, who directed so many of the episodes, rest his soul, he, he just insisted that, uh, well, the humor on Happy Days was kind of fun and light and, and silly, which was its genius. And so that's the atmosphere on the set. And you, when you open the door to that soundstage, people dropped their earth weights. They just didn't come onto the set. And people went through a lot of stuff as happens in life. People went through deaths in their families, marriages, divorces, 
you know, unbelievable situations. And all of that, all of that got dropped at the door. And so you came into this atmosphere that was sweet and supportive and fun and light and loving. That never changed. And there was a sense of sort of astonished gratitude, uh, really, that at the privilege uh, that this was ongoing. People worked really hard. The writers worked so hard on that show and so um, cohesively, so holistically. You know, there was the joke meister. There was the guy that was, no, we got to stick to the character. There was the brilliant story arc guy. And just that meld, you know, was brilliant. And again, I coming into the office and that beautiful success, as late as I did, I thought, oh, gosh, what's it going to be like? But I felt that just coming on the set right away, there was a sense of first day of school. Each one of you could so have easily gone, eh, one more, hmm, taking it for granted. But boy, that was not the sense. People worked hard. They cared. They were grateful. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's the kind of work atmosphere you hope anyone gets to experience in their lifetime. Right. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen nicotine pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen nicotine pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge. Simply pick your strength and varieties online and check out. Once your Zen nicotine pouches arrive in the mail, enjoy pure nicotine satisfaction at your leisure. After your 10-day trial, let us know what you think. If Zen isn't for you, no hard feelings. It's that simple. Order online at Zen.com. That's Z-Y-N.com to start your new journey today with the Zen 10 Challenge. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical.
have to ask you about this. I, I did not know this. At the same time, you married Desi Arnaz Jr., mm-hmm. son of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Mm-hmm. You're now part of the Ball Arnaz family. Mm-hmm. And you guys are what, having Thanksgiving together? Or, I mean, Linda, this is unbelievable. <laughs> Well, yeah, it was, uh, they were remarkable people, brilliant. Desi Sr., you know, he he was, I don't know that he was ever tested, but he was a genius. I think he was a genius. His thinking was so sparkly and so, so original. Alistair was like, now, mind you, I came in very late in, in both of their lives. But sure. in his conversation, you go through along the normal route. Not Desi, he would go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about, and he would take a look at it from here, from like another angle. You go, you know, he didn't see walls. He saw ways under and around and above and through that were unusual. He was responsible for when he was running Paramount for Mission Impossible and Star Trek. Those were shows that he liked and he championed. And that's why they were even seen. Right. He did that serially. I mean, he, with my understanding, when this is from his book, brilliant autobiography, thrilling autobiography. You know, they came from Cuba. He and his father was nothing. And they were living in a sub-basement with a pile of broken tiles. And they had to make a living. And so they scooped up a bunch of tiles and got some glue. And they went around the neighborhood and said, we're mosaic artists. Okay, whatever. Anyway, they you know they saw where other people would see limitation or fear or something. He saw opportunity and possibilities on a regular basis, and of course, you know, brilliant musician and all of that. But when they had seen he and Lucy perform in New York, and and he said, "Yeah, but we have to have an audience." Well, there had never been a live audience in a soundstage before. He said, "But we can't do it." So he just kept figuring out ways to do this. One of the things which I loved was that, so there would be the, the performance area, then the cameras, then the audience. And they said, but you know, the audience can't see. So Desi said, well, raise the audience on Bleacher. You know? So he just would figure it out. He had rational thought and creativity went hand in hand powerfully with him. So just to be you know, around that kind of brilliance and to um, experience a mind that thinks like that in all aspects of life was really, was thrilling. Right. Um, not long after uh, Happy Days and you were cast on Matlock. Mm-hmm. And then, again, your life is so fascinating. <laughs> then shortly after that, your life takes yet another turn and you, you decide, oh, I'm just going to launch a jazz career. What was it that drew you specifically to jazz? Oh, that's a really, that's a very cool question. Thanks for that. Well, growing up, we didn't have air conditioning. And the the summers in Japan, in Tokyo, were brutal. I mean, they were muggy. It was monsoon season, big bugs, big heat. And so my mother kept gardenias in the house. So there was this wafting of, you know, this lovely mm. aroma and jazz. I don't know, it just, they were just intermingled and it somehow seemed to bring the temperature down. Somehow, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it would just make you feel kind of chill. So that was the music of a large part of my, of my childhood, that and musicals. 
you know, lots of okay. musicals. And it was a way, I suppose, of them maybe staying connected to the a part of America that they had missed, you know, being right. so far away. So that was an influence. And I, I'd done musicals as a kid. And but once I was living in LA, I, music was no longer a part of my life and I really missed it. I sorely missed it. And I wanted somehow to get music back in my life. And so I would have been introduced to a couple of friends and the music director and a director and a club owner in LA. And I realized that you could get your team together, create a show, call a club and go out and perform. And it was certainly yeah. not going to make any, a living at this or, you know, making, <laughs> but it was a way of getting music back into my life. So I had one music director for 22 years, Ron Abel, adored, and he held my hand and those terrifying things of, because in a concert, it's not a character and you're right. not talking to your fellow actors. You're talking to the audience, which is yeah. terrifying. And when, when you, I mean, there's no one else. It's just, it's, you finish singing the song and it's still up to you to move the show forward. So lots of fun things to learn there. And, but jazz was always an area that I had wanted to lean to. And Ron would be the first person to say he's much more show tune and, you know, more of Broadway, big kind of sound. About 14 years ago, I was invited to do a show, of just a concert with a whole bunch of people in it about Gershwin. And they said, your music director is going to be Ted Firth. It's like, well, who's this? My guy is Ron. And Ron, who worked with all kinds, in fact, one of his mainstays is he works with Lucy Arnaz. They, they have worked together for such a long time, wonderfully. Anyway, so I go into this rehearsal. I'm not so sure about this Ted guy. And he puts <laughs> the piano and I tell you what, I was gone. This was, this was the sound. This was the guy. And so we've musically been together for 14 years now. We've done three CDs and coming up on a fourth. And again, he works with so many, many, many people. But there's not a time. It's the same true for Ron. I I get to work with him and do a concert or, you know, create some arrangement. I don't learn. It just You just feel your soul being moved forward. You know, it's not like was with that, I mean, you know this for yourself. You, you know that the, one of the joys of acting is that you'll you'll never get it right. <laughs> you know? Right. Oh, maybe every once in a while you feel like ah, that was okay, but right. the learning curve never ever ends. I mean, that's the that's the thrill of it. There's always something more to experience. There's some other depth to find, or some other whatever it is. Certainly, the same is true with music. It's awesome. And it's interesting that, you know, you have your first musical experiences, obviously, in Japan. And at the same time, there's nothing less uniform as a musical art form that I can think of as jazz. And yet that is where you ended up. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought of it in those terms. But oh, oh, yes. And Gosh, the the people that you get to work with, the the musicians and their and their legacies, and it's a wonderful thing. And I've been able to do cabaret in a few different countries now, and and I only do the Great American Songbook. Can't sing pop to save my life, but you know when you get to perform in I don't know Azerbaijan or something like that, and they know the tunes, they know the tunes. Right. You realize that the Great American Songbook all through the Cold War was making subtle inroads. It's like it was water that just seeped under those walls. They came across in x-rays because they could put the musical grooves into x-rays and they could send those and they would pass the customs or the borders or whatever would know. 
And then however that happened, I don't know if you take them some kind of a wax imprint of the X-ray and then you get the record. Ergo, the songs were being played in Behind the Iron Curtain and this appetite for America. But to your point, that freedom of thought that you experience viscerally in American jazz in the Great American Songbook, clearly was igniting and supporting and nurturing some sense of freedom of thought. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's fascinating. Uh, I have to talk to you about The Office a little bit yes. more. Yeah. You get cast as Pam's mom. This occurred to me. So in Happy Days, <laughs> you play two different roles, two different names with no acknowledgement. In, in The Office, Pam's mom first played by someone else for one episode. Again, any thought when you were taking that over that the part had been played by someone else? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Of course, I'm to this day, I'm convinced she was much better than I was and you know, <laughs> better everything. But I, yeah, I mean, grateful for who knows. I mean, it's a gypsy life as we know. And so yes, when the phone rings, you're either available, or you're not. Apparently she wasn't. So I, to my good fortune, when I got to do the show, my son was however old he was. And to the point that the bargaining chips of Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny were not useful anymore. Right. And however, being Pam's mom was very useful because I was cool again. I was really cool. <laughs> That's my son. So thank you for that. <laughs> um, again, you had gone into definitely the, the biggest show that was on at the time, Happy Days. Uh, did you have any feelings about coming in and joining the office? Terrified. Once, you know? Well, I was terrified. First of all, I was really? that I got the role, thrilled. And then, of course, as I had seen once I knew it was going to be, I had watched some of the episodes. Like, oh, okay. And the level of talent is mind boggling. So that's where the terror came in. It's like, oh my God, I, they're going to find me out. They're going to get fired. It'll be terrible. <laughs> but the biggest surprise, I think, was the lack of improvisation that was going on. I mean, there was mm. some, but but the honoring of the word and then the ability to mask all of that skill and technique and just to make it seem, have it be so organic from all of the actors was mm. something. And then also the way that it was, that it was shot. I had never shot with Steadicam so present in the scene. And I loved that sort of, that almost improviser, is that a word? Improvisatorial, something like that. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Feel of make way for the camera because he feels that he has to be here for the moment. So that was lovely. That was really fun and impressive to be a part of, but also just to see how smooth all of that language was between the permanent members of, of the cast. Yeah. The level of was, I mean, between the musicianship and the actors who were writers and the writers who were actors. And yeah, it was very heady and at the same time, very grounded set. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I never really had thought about that before, because obviously we get asked the question all the time about how much is improvised. And I think a lot of that comes from now, you know, people knowing that there are so many great improv improvisers mm -hmm. now i can't say it uh <laughs> people who can who can improvise you know who are on the show but yeah and actually that never sort of occurred to me that 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 ability that that so many had to make it appear as though they were coming up mm -hmm. with it that gave it that sort of organic yes. feeling yeah 
further rooted in reality, et cetera. Yeah. Um, when did you find out that you were going to have this, this story arc with Michael and to become Michael's love interest? Uh, well, I guess, I don't know when, when did I come on the show? This is the problem with this age. I, I honest to God, I can't tell the difference anymore between two years and eight. <laughs> I mean, not long after I was on the show, then this, then this arc, I will say that uh, one of the scenes they, they talk about, I talked about myself being 54 years old and I wasn't 54 yet. And I, my insane vanity was so, it was like, I can't say I'm 54. And then one of, you know, the, the changes came in and they, they lowered my age to 52 and I was greatly relieved. It's like, oh, ridiculous. But, yeah, was, yeah, trying to make an issue of age in the script and I was having a much bigger issue myself. <laughs> uh, how did you find working with Steve oh my on God. that storyline? So he's so facile. I mean, he can do anything. He can do anything as an actor. He's so smart. Um, yeah, I mean, we had a chance to talk. He was so gracious and so, so lovely. And um, so it was interesting just to get a little bit of a glimpse into his personal life and how, what a devoted family man he is and yes, lovely wife and great dad. So that was just cool. You just feel, oh, okay. I'm with a really terrific human being here. Um, and the capacity which he gives back to various communities uh, is also impressive and not something he touts. It's just something he does. And you know, the other thing I don't, I'm going to get this wrong, but at some point he had had, uh, well, his future film career was starting to take off and he was at a point contractually, whatever, uh, that he could have, he was could have left the show, but he didn't. And mm -hmm. he put his film career on pause, which as we know in this business, you put it on pause and they'll just say, okay, never mind," and they'll move on. And that could be your only shot to have a big you know, move in your career. And instead he came, said to the office, no, I'm gonna, I will leave in a year, but I'm giving you a year. So I've, I've never seen that happen. In Hollywood, I, I don't think many people in any kind of business have seen that. Someone makes it was the right thing to do, and it meant that everybody had a year to plan. Okay, this means I might not, the show's going to last a year. It may or may not last after that. And so I'll plan financially to you know, my kids' college or my mortgage, right. whatever it is. And the writers could make a, a transition. And, but I mean, that's a remarkable grace note to give and most unusual. Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is, is that he has 40 year old virgin that comes out, you know, basically at the beginning of season two Wow, and he stays till he stays seven years. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. I always it, it's interesting to me, uh, Jenna, your your yeah. pretend daughter, mm -hmm. she actually uh, made this comment. It always sticks with me. I don't know if I've ever said it on here or not, but mm -hmm. that. Steve Carell and Will Ferrell have this unspoken competition in Hollywood for like, who's the nicest person <laughs> <laughs> that they're just so talented, but also just so kind and generous. Mm -hmm. um, you came back several times over a few seasons. Did you notice things change when you kept coming back or did you feel just as welcome oh, um, no, throughout just, the time? Just as welcomed. Yeah, just as welcome. And so just so 
grateful. Um, yeah, Jenna's, there was a full scene of the office that came up when I'd gone down the dark hole of the internet as one can. Right. And it was Jenna. And as an actress, I marveled at, at the tone at which she hit the scene. I know it was a scene where she's railing at Steve because you, you know, you hurt my mother's feelings. Right. And I just sat there watching it like as like an acting student. It's like, how'd she do that? How did she figure out to hit that note of absolute truth and real anger and yet have it be a comedic without, without playing the funny in it? Right. Just the tone was pitch perfect, hard to do. Anyway, she's a, she's a wonderful actress. Yes. Well, I'm so glad that you came to that DunderCon event in New Jersey. I think people enjoyed it so much. And yeah, really a, a celebration of the show and, and, and everyone who was a part of it. So that was awesome. Yes, I was happy to be there. Thank you. That was really, really cool. Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen Nicotine Pouches, you can find many. Not only did Zen create the first ever nicotine pouch, we're still America's number one choice for smoke-free, spit-free nicotine satisfaction. It could be because Zen is made with only six simple ingredients, including naturally derived nicotine salt. Or maybe it's because Zen is the only nicotine pouch with a 10-day trial. For anyone worried Zen won't cut it like traditional tobacco, just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zen. Find your Zen online or in a store near you at zen.com slash find. That's zyn.com slash find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. 
You've been acting in The Other, which is Linda and my new term for film and television, Mm -hmm. since the 70s. Too many shows to mention. How have you seen the landscape of television specifically change over that time? Well, I think it's I think it's better. I really do. I think the whole art form there has has risen. I think it's relevant in ways that it that it wasn't. I think it's truth telling in ways that it didn't have to be or you know, didn't have to be. The range of topics that it covers is is remarkable. I mean, it used to be more about differences of eras, but now it encompasses different kinds of humor and different kinds of politics and different living conditions. And so there really is something for everyone in it. I think the acting is better. I think the writing is better Mm -hmm. than what it was. I do miss some of the cinematic art. I think that's a lot of that has been, has been lost. Again, this is probably vanity speaking again, but the way that many of the cinematographers I had a chance to work with would craft light. Mm. The care and the attention from all members of uh, behind the behind the lens were given a chance to to really put that into into film. And I think we've I think we've lost that. Uh, that's just a personal preference. Mm. The, the time doesn't really exist anymore for that. And I dare say, to a large extent, the skill doesn't exist. There's more interest in the overall physicality than right here. And I miss that. I miss that as an audience member going to see film. I mean, film is so is such an intimate art form. And as we get into, you know, black shadows cut across actors' faces um i feel like we're, we're we've lost something in the you know in the art form but that's old school that's very interesting yeah also not as a person of color now seeing that change in television i'm astonished at my level of ignorance i would not have the career today that i had starting out in in the 70s in american television and i think now what it must have been like to open a magazine, turn on a television channel for a young girl my age of color growing up and not see themselves. They were mm-hmm. invisible. They just they didn't exist. So that's something I think you know has changed, is changing, and had to change. And it's an egregious wrong to those people of our ages and younger who had to grow up people of color who did not see themselves just they were invisible yeah so well said it's so insane now to the diversity as you talked about but just the variety and the a number of projects and platforms that are available now Mm -hmm. that i think are what you said doing a much better job of storytelling, Mm -hmm. writing, becoming important, Mm -hmm. diversity. It's fun. It's fun to enjoy and to to be working in in this art form now, for sure. I think The Office was probably one of the first shows to delve into that. I mean, it didn't champion whatever the norm was, whatever the... Right. You know, and it exposed, brought to life, tremendous diversity of of eccentrics, you know, and there's an eccentric in all of us. And 
So I think it it helped many people feel validated, you know, that needed to be validated, that should be validated. Yeah. And the office did that with such a note of truth. I mean, without forcing it, that real people come in many different ways and and somehow we'll bump up against each other, but we'll get along by God and we'll get a product made at the end of the day. <laughs> right. I think the office was a very, you know, pioneering force in those possibilities. Yeah. Celebrating ordinary people. Yeah. And the beauty of that. Um, you're a jazz musician, uh, an actor. Now you're a you're a baker. You're you are just uh recently started Duffy's dough with your partner patrick duffy a sourdough starter kit business i need to get on the mailing list here okay what what is what is your interest was this a pandemic born thing or was this is this something yes. is this an old love no it's not and i i'm gonna take you on a little tour i'm gonna we'll talk a little bit and i so yeah patrick um family went to Alaska when he was two years old and some kind okay. woman up there took pity on Mrs. Duffy and said, honey, you're never going to make through the Alaska winter without this and gave her a starter that apparently had been handed down from the gold rush miner people. So, what? and they have kept it alive unadulterated in their family for 72 years. And Patrick, stop it. What? Yeah. So it's a very, very hearty strain. It's a very sort of, it's a, it has a very robust, you know, flavor in it. And. Well, it's clearly it's hearty. It's 72 yeah, years old. old. Yeah. So Patrick bakes with it. He, you know, pancakes and all this. So, and I have never been a baker, but um, uh, hard for me to pass up one of these cinnamon rolls or the pancakes or the dinner rolls. So. Then we would, I'd see him, you know, we'd take him, make them for friends if they'd come over for dinner, or if we were going someplace, take the cinnamon rolls and people respond to them because they're wonderful. And Patrick said, well, maybe I should turn it into a, into a business. It's like, well, of course you should. And yes, it's the dough and the experience of activating your starter and baking and all that, but it's so much fun. I'd never been a baker, but the meditative quality of kneading the dough and seeing something that's been dormant come to life to see that yeast and froth and all that come to life. There's something, I don't know, it's very grounding. It's fun. It's fun to do by yourself. It's fun to do with your friends and family. Lord knows it's fun to eat, but we didn't know. I talked to my son's godfather, Lance Stewart, who's an entrepreneur. I said, Lance, what should, you know, is this an idea? And he said, sure. You're crazy to do it. Do it anyway. And here's what you do. You do it. You get all your kits, everything you need in one box and you sell it online. And you start with maybe 200. See if you like it, if it sells and then then move on from there. And I thought, what well, could be so hard? You get a little box, you throw a few things in. <laughs> oh my God. I didn't know you have to, you know, legal this, FDA that, you know, we are now, because Patrick and I are doing all the packing ourselves. We are, we are Colorado. We live in Colorado. We are, we are food handlers for the next two years from the state of Colorado. Pass the test. <laughs> I mean, it's just the learning curve is so, so steep. What kind of box does it lift this way? Does it go down? Is it three quarters? Is it mat? Is it, I mean, yeah, I'm frothing at the mouth telling this because it's so prescient in my mind. You ha you build your site, and then you know, in the old days, 
Mr. Smith would come to the store and he pays your thing. And at the end of the week, you take your paper sack of money and you take it to the bank and you give it to Jane and you're done. Now they pay, the credit cards goes into the site. Then you have to link in e-commerce. There's this thing called e-commerce. It's WooCommerce. <laughs> then that goes, they take the money, then it goes to plug-in. Then it goes to, the, I mean, the stuff is just, it's unbelievable. So we have a darling tech man in India. So I pull all-nighters on a regular basis to get the e-commerce thing going. How is this going for you? Well, we launched two weeks ago, worried if we would be able to sell 200 boxes. The 200 were sold out in less than 24 hours. It's like, yay! Oh, no! Because now, so we... We have, we've ordered another 800 supplies. So we've promised to get a thousand kits. Lord help us under people's trees by Christmas. We've sold, I think, 620 as of this morning. So, but I had to reorder supplies. So that's, I have 800 pounds of flour coming and 370 pounds of sugar. And then the, you know, cause they're cups and aprons and things. And they said, no problem. It'll be here. Just the flour and the sugar alone, it'll be coming in an 18-wheeler. An 18-wheeler? We can't get an 18-wheeler up the driveway. Said, okay, we'll leave it at the bottom of the driveway. No, you won't. These are the kinds of challenges, you know, that were. And the other day, tragically, we had, we had ordered pot holders from Florida. They were all set to come. And then we had that email from the company saying your pot holders are scattered across greater Florida because they lost the whole warehouse. So, oh, no, no. yeah, unbelievable. They're safe, but nobody died. But so I will show you. It's just madness. I used to have a house. Now I have a factory. There's the part of the assembly table. Can you see that? Oh, my There's word. This is what you get when you get your little kit. Let's see. And the logo I made myself started with crayons. And then there's some boxes. You see, they're boxes. I mean, your guys, her house is a, it's a, yes, it's a factory. It's just, it's absurd. But we're learning, you know. I mean, we, we are learning. They're the next. Oh, I mean, there's some more boxes. So, anyway, we are making it up as we go along. And, uh, you know, you know what what sourdough goes really well with what chili. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I, I like can it. get some of this sourdough sold for sure, Linda. <laughs> okay. I see a strategic uh, partnership in our I future. I love that idea. Oh, bless your heart. Wow. Oh, well, I can't tell you how nice it was to chat with you. Congratulations on the success of uh, of Duffy's Dough. Good luck. Thank you. Thank uh, you so much, Brian. Better you than me <laughs> there, and uh, I wish I wish you all of the best. Thank you. Continued all good things for you, Brian, and thank you again. So kind of you to have had me on. I no, thank you. <laughs> Linda, you're a joy. Thank you so much for stopping by and talking to me. I absolutely loved hearing about your time growing up in Japan. Not everyone can say that they broke bread in Japan 
with Tennessee Williams. This is amazing to me. And to those of you out there listening, thanks for spending another Tuesday with me. Or maybe you're listening on a Wednesday, Thursday. Happy days. I'm getting distracted. Sorry. Whatever day you're listening to this, I'm glad you're here. I'm going to be back next week with another conversation you are not going to want to miss. Oh, I promise you, you're going to want to hear that one. Until then, have a fantastic week. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our producers are Diego Tapia, Liz Hayes, Hannah Harris, and Emily Carr. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary, and our intern is Sammy Katz. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend, Creed Bratton. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.